The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So we're starting a new topic tonight. Last week, the last couple weeks actually, um, I was talking about, we were discussing together the three Buddhist personality types, something that is used to help us better recognize the particular condition patterns of the mind. And tonight we're going to move on to uh, this next chapter of Jack Kornfield's book, which is about desire and abundance. And it's a really wonderful place for investigation. The Buddha places uh, desire right at the heart of things. And it's really our misunderstanding of desire that causes so many problems. The tendency, of course, is either to be, and this is the most common, of course, is to be lost in our desires. So, I mean, in a way, we could describe almost everything that happened today just as the movement of desire. Like even now, like most of us are moving in some way. Where does that movement come from? Well, it comes out of desire. You know, my nose itches and I rub it. You know, my butt gets sore. I just, I shift my weight. Same with our mind. You know, we don't like this thought. The mind moves to another thought. We like this thought. We think it again. So whether we're talking about the body or we're talking about the mind, Movement comes out of desire. And we misunderstand it because normally we just take it personally. And when I have a desire, like a fly is walking on my skin and I have the desire to flick it away, you know, that, <clears throat> that desire feels very personal in the sense that it would be hard not to just act it out as it arises in the mind. We don't question our desires very often. I mean, sometimes we have desires we wish we didn't have, but we wish we didn't have them because they're going to get us in trouble. It's not like we don't take them personally, but we know they're dangerous, so we know they you know, can get us in trouble. And then once we start getting a sense of how much our desires get into trouble, we can have a different relationship to desire, which is, you know, I hate my desires. Or I wish I didn't have this desire. But that's a desire too. So it doesn't really get us out of the problem of desiring. And this is why the Buddha really emphasized understanding. The, the issue isn't about controlling the mind or controlling desires. It's about understanding desire. And one of the things we start to notice when we look and get interested in desiring and desire, we see it's absolutely everywhere. Everything is, is basically fueled by desire. All creatures, one-celled creatures, sophisticated, complicated creatures like ourselves. It's really, I think you can use the word life energy. And so there's a whole range of desire, but the basic movement, the sort of will to do, you see that in amoebas and you see it in human beings. 
the will to put on a sweater when we're cold or take off a sweater when we're hot or feed the body when we're hungry. So what do we do with that desiring? You know, once we realize that, well, there's no way to be a human being without desiring, what do we do? Well, one of the things we do is we get interested just in tracking it, like watching, observing the movement of desire. We get interested when does get interested in when desire becomes a problem. I mean, think about times in your life when desire has become a problem. I bet we'd have some pretty interesting stories in the room about when desire became a problem. Suzanne brought some nice chocolate chip bars this morning. You know, I had the desire for some. I had some. And then at what point, there were some left over after the morning program. There's still maybe a few left, I don't know, in the community room. Probably not. <laughs> some of us had more than our shares, maybe. But anyway, it's like, you know, it, you wouldn't consider it toxic to have, for most of us, to have a chocolate chip bar. But then two or three or whatever. You know, at what point does it become toxic? Or watch a little news or a little TV. You know, and then, so what makes something, the desiring of something, when does it become toxic, harmful for ourselves and others? And when is it just life energy? Feeding the body, putting a sweater on, hanging out with friends, building a shelter. Because clearly we understand the neurotic, toxic, harmful end of craving or desiring. But at what point? What's the problem? Where does the problem begin? There's a famous story, some of you have heard me tell it, from the discourses. It actually doesn't involve the Buddha, but it's from the time of the Buddha. And there was a famous lay follower of the Buddha named Chitta. And his habit was after his meal every day, he'd go out where the monks and nuns were practicing, not just the Buddhist followers, but other ascetics out in the edge of town, and he'd go walk and just interact with them, talk to them about practice, about the mind, and about freedom, and things like that. And so he was walking after his lunch. He noticed some Buddhist monks, some followers of the Buddha there discussing something, and he asked them what they were talking about. And he, they said, well, we were talking, we're talking about greed, craving, and, uh, and we're debating, you know, is the problem, because we experience, like all of us do, the monks were saying, we experience this mental suffering due to craving. And we're trying to figure out, is the problem the object that we desire? Or is it the problem that I'm sensitive to that object? So let's say we crave a visual experience. We see somebody we like. We see a car we like in the parking lot. And then we crave it. So is the problem that I can see? Because then, you know, the solution would be you just pluck out your eyes. Or is the problem that there's that nice car in the parking lot? In which case, we just have to make a rule. No nice cars at common ground. You know, only, only beaters. So they were debating this, and, and the layperson, Chitta, listened to the monks discussing this, and then offered his own thoughts, which is a bit presumptuous, because in those... Well, even today, you know, it's sort of like lay people are to be 
the recipients of the teachings from the monastic community, not so much the other way around. So this is an unusual story in that the lay person then spoke. And he said, well, imagine that you have a black ox and a white ox pulling you know, a, a wagon or something. And they're yoked together. You know how they have that wood piece of wood that you tie the reins to. It keeps the ox or the bulls walking together. And then he, he asked the monks, he said, well, would it be right to say that the white ox is a fetter on the black one or that the black one is a fetter on the white one? And the monks responded, no, that wouldn't be correct to say that. And Chitta says, just so. You know, it's not that the eye, the, the visual sensitivity is causing, you know, burdening the heart or the object that the eye is seeing. That's not the problem. It's the yoke that's the problem. It, it's what ties the sensitivity and the object together. So usually we call this clinging. The Buddha, it's like uh, some of you were at maybe uh, Roger Jackson's talk last night, and he was talking about loving kindness. And uh, he was also talking about uh, desire, because love, in a way, is a desire, wholesome desire in this case, right? The desire to care, to love all beings without exception. That's a desire. And so he was saying that in Buddhist practice, it's like the Inuits, up the people of the north, might have 15 or 20 words for snow, describing the different kinds of snow. Buddhists have many words for the experience of craving or desiring because it, it manifests in different ways. So in the case of chitta, this yoke between the black ox and the white ox, or the yoke between the seeing and the object, this is a particular kind of desiring that can arise. So initially, you know, it's OK to have a preference. We see something we like. It's totally appropriate. In fact, it's unavoidable not to like something that we're conditioned to like. So it's, uh, it's appropriate for there to be a preference or to have to sort of recognize the attraction. But when that attraction, when the mind starts to construct a sense of self, a sense of a somebody who needs that object, wants that object, will be sad or disturbed if it doesn't get that object, that's that yoke that begins to be constructed between the sensitivity and the object. And so this is happening all the time, isn't it? It's totally OK and unavoidable. We're going to be sensitive. And because we're sensitive, we're going to have sense experiences. We're going to see things and hear things and think things and smell and taste things and touch things. And some of those things will be pleasant, and some will be neutral, and some will be unpleasant. And the interesting and important thing is, what is our mind doing around the sense contact, the seeing, the, the sensitivity seeing something, or the sensitivity hearing something, or the sensitivity thinking something? What does our mind do with that? Does it build up some edifice, something that weighs a lot? about how much weight, just even today, maybe 
you can bring to mind something you desired strongly today, where the mind constructed a sense of ourselves out in the future who would be so much happier if they get what we want. You know, maybe you imagined a vacation or imagined a relationship or imagined a new job or a new body or a new world. And because the mind proliferated, you know, we create the experience of weight. And with so it's almost magical. By constructing this imagined self who would be happier in the future if this happens, it gets intense. It gets heavy, right? And this is the magic. That heaviness, in a magical way, causes us to believe that this is true because it hurts. You know, it's like if my heart, if I feel weighed down or if my heart burns because of this desiring, I must really want it because why else would my heart be burning, be weighed down? You see how weird that is? It's like we create, we construct, the mind out of habit constructs this constricted feeling that then causes us to believe that what we're seeing or what we're hearing or what we're thinking, I really need. Because we can actually see something very pleasant, beautiful, or very unpleasant without needing it or not needing it, fearing it. It's possible, for example, let's say you're single and uh, you know you meet somebody who's you find very attractive, very interesting. And uh, of course it's nothing wrong with you know it's nothing wrong in an ordinary sense with having thoughts, hey, you know, I'd like to get to know this person. I'd like to ask them out or something. But let's say you're you're not uh, you're in a committed relationship, so you're not available, and you still run into this person. Well, it would be nice to be able to actually relax and meet this person and to have your eyes open, you know, to be a sensitive creature there with the person, without being afraid of the desiring afraid that you're going to get identified or get caught in it, or afraid that, you know, in the sense that you've got to squash it, afraid to let it arise in the mind. And so it's, it's like learning to not be confused by the different desires that arise. Some desires are giving us important information. Yeah, I should feed this body. I should put a sweater on. I should get home before dark. You know, I should have my get the little light on the dashboard, I should bring my car in for an oil change or something. You know, so we respond to the information, but some of the information we don't need to respond to. Like our, the system, the body-mind system is sort of primitive. It's giving us information all the time, but not all the information we need to do anything about. But because we're not very sophisticated, we're not very alert, very present, then we tend to construct, we tend to act out our desires whether or not it does any good, whether or not it's skillful. I mean, just think about how many desires we allow the mind to proliferate on. Like, I notice even today, 
that not so often, but every once in a while, I'll notice myself proliferating around winning the lottery. Even though I think I bought a lottery ticket one time in my life, and it's probably been over 20 years. <laughs> it's like, you know, as if somehow I'm going to win. <laughs> I think you have to buy the ticket, right? <laughs> and isn't that funny how we do that? You know, we let ourselves proliferate around things we know we don't actually want or aren't going to act out the desire for. But we let the mind build up castles in the sky. And the thing is, we think it's innocuous, like there's no harm. What's the harm? But if we look carefully, we directly experience the harm. The mind, the body, gets bound up. It gets constricted. And then that constriction deludes the mind. This is what the Buddha said. It's uh, Jack Kornfeld has this quote at the beginning of, of this chapter. It's from the middle-length discourses of the Buddha. Most people fail to see reality because of wanting. And that, that's just the opening statement, but that's a powerful statement. We're not connecting because the mind is distorted by wanting. You know how that is. It's like uh, how subtly we are manipulating the situation because we desire something. We think we're being really fair, but we're putting a subtle spin on things so we get what we want. I see myself manipulating my wife all the time in silly ways just because I want her to think something or I, I want to get something. Yeah, this is somebody I care deeply about. Because craving distorts the knowing mind. And we start to see in a way that confirms the story around the craving. So the Buddha says, most people fail to see reality because of wanting or craving, I guess we could say. He goes on, they are attached. They cling to material objects, to pleasures, to the things of this world. This very clinging is the source of suffering. So is desire the source of suffering? Like I said, desire, like I haven't found a way to be in the world without desire. So if desire is the source of suffering, we're screwed. Like you can't be happy as a human being. So it's really clinging. It's when desire gets combined with mental proliferation. You know, through the process of the mind taking the desiring personally, the attraction, the, the sort of repulsion, you know, we see certain things, we're naturally repulsed. We see certain other things and we're naturally attracted. It's just natural. It just arises due to our conditioning. But when we let the mind begin to mess with it, the thinking mind, proliferate around it, then we get clinging. And the way, like I said, the Buddha has a lot of words for craving or for desiring. So there's chanda, which is more that natural will to do, more of a neutral life energy. It's just you find everywhere in living creatures. And then there's clinging, which is uh, tanha. Sometimes the more accurate translation is a thirst. There's loba, which is greed, and there's raga, which is lust. And then when 
those things get really entrenched in the mind through the process of thinking, proliferation, and we call it upadana, which is grasping or um, yeah, grasping is often how it's translated. So we, we go from wanting or craving, and then when it builds up a head of steam, we have grasping. The mind is holding on. It's not just leaning forward. It's actually created an edifice in its mind through the process of thinking. And it's, it's embedded. The sense of self is embedded in that desire. I will be happier if I get this. I will be happier if I get rid of this. I will be happy. I will be only happy if I become this. And you know, when we have, when we're embedded in that, when the sense of self is established in that craving, then we may not realize it, but we actually, uh, we want to disconnect from this moment because this isn't what I want. This idea, you know, this imagining, that's what I want. So there's a neurotic disconnecting from the present moment reality because it's not it. This is it, what I'm thinking, you know, the lottery or the relationship or this life that I imagine for myself. And I mentioned earlier, you know, when we get this head of steam, we, there's this real hook, you know, that kind of creates the pattern of addiction. What is that hook? And I described it. It's that squeeze on the heart. That's really the important feedback mechanism that we have to see. We have to learn to be mindful enough, relaxed and clear enough, continuous enough with the mindfulness so that we're more often recognizing when there is this burning or this squeeze on the heart due to the desire leading to craving and to grasping. Because it's that feeling of grasping itself that becomes sort of the addictive, um, you know, the sort of sweet nectar that keeps us coming back. We, in, in a strange way, we get addicted to the squeeze itself. Like we don't feel real if we don't have a desire. I mean, imagine Imagine just now or someday, you know, being really clear and relaxed and present and not having any squeeze in your heart, like not needing to do anything. You know, it would almost scare us. Like, what's, what's my life about? Or who am I? Or what should I do? We might actually start to panic People do this sometimes. They start because they're sincere in their practice, regular in their practice. Gradually, equanimity just begins to creep in to their life and to their mind and heart. And it can, it can take them by surprise. And they can like misunderstand the experience of equanimity and think something's wrong. Everything seems flat, you know. But it's like it can be a little tricky transition because normally we're used to taking as our beacon, you know, getting our direction in life from the squeeze in the heart, from whatever's burning most intensely. And we follow that. We sort of, it's our guru. We take it 
follow its instructions, do this, manipulate that, get this, you'll be happier. And then when we start to learn and we uh, learn how to not sort of let that, let the mind proliferate in, in a way that establishes that grasping, that constriction, then we have to find another guide, another sort of place to take direction, which would be something like the motivation for the motivation of compassion, like taking care of all beings. And of course, that includes ourselves. But then our action isn't arising out of craving, grasping. It's arising out of love and compassion. It's a very different motivation. One has a very expansive light feeling. When we're taking care of ourselves out of compassion, or taking care of somebody else, taking care of the whole world out of compassion or love. It's very light and expansive. And when we're, even if we're doing exactly the same action, let's say we're doing something to uh, teach people about the environment, or taking care of our elderly parent, or uh, feeding ourselves a nice meal, right? We can do exactly the same action. One is coming out of an expanded, light state of mind. No yoke, no weight, no extra edifice. And the other can come out of a really neurotic sense, like, you know, if I don't eat, I'm going to die. Or if, uh, you know, uh, you know how we can have really sort of intense thoughts about food. I mean, I notice that sometimes, there I am, my house is empty. Got a nice meal in front of me. No pressure like, you know, other wild animals competing for the food. <laughs> and yet I'll, I'll catch myself eating in a way that's like, uh, you know, I better get this down before some bigger animal shows up and pushes me aside. And so we can just look at how... Um, we can act in the, there are other motivations that can guide us in terms of how we engage the world, interact. We don't need to base our action on this heaviness, this constriction. A lot of uh, activists, you know, are drawn to practice because they tend to suffer a lot because they, uh, you know, we get taught that you need to be angry, you need to be a bit crazed in order to do good work in the world because there's a lot of inertia out there and how the heck are we going to overcome all the inertia or all the forces lined up against us? Well, we gotta, you know, we gotta draw on our power and so it's, because of our habits, we think our power comes from that intense knot in the mind or heart, being angry, you know, or being really fixated on our desire, on our utopian desire where everybody is equal and well-fed or whatever yours might be. But there's another more grounded uh, motivation, which, like I'm saying, is compassion. So this is another end of desire, right? We can learn to Instead of the self-centered, neurotic, craving, grasping, I'll be happy 
I'll be saved if there can be this more uh, lighter, more universal love or compassion. I care. I care about suffering. I care about living beings. I care about this being. Life is difficult. What can we do to alleviate the difficulty? That's a beautiful motivation. And it doesn't require heaviness in the heart, in the mind. It doesn't require tension. I'm not saying it's easy. But we can practice. We practice by becoming, literally becoming, a devoted student of the experience of desire. And just noticing how sometimes desire creeps into craving and grasping, and sometimes desire grounds down into a more pure and simple compassion and love, a, a wish to take care of, to respond to, like to respond to what's in front of us in the moment, what needs to be done now. We don't need some grand plan. In fact, that's a telltale sign we've gone to the dark side, you know, to the side of craving and grasping when we've got a big plan. You know, this is how it should be. Imagine if our politician said, you know, I really don't know how it should be, but, you know, I'm intelligent and I really care and uh, I don't need to be president, I don't need to be senator or whatever, you know. And just to, like, show up with this pure motivation, with this simple motivation, and just do what needs to be done. And we can have that same sort of reflection about our own life, like when we have the grand plan of what the utopian mark would look like and be like, what job he'd have, what body he'd have, what kind of mind or thoughts he'd have. And, you know, all we're doing is setting up this, the weight of comparing mind, judging mind. We have all the good reasons how to hate ourselves until we somehow become this imagined thing. But, you know, we can never actually be what we imagine because there's sort of different dimensions. Like whatever we imagine, that's a concept. It will never be reality. It never matches reality. Reality will never be like a concept of reality. It's like the simile that's always used, like the difference between a menu and the meal. No matter how accurate we make the pictures and the description in the menu, it's just in a different universe than the actual food itself. So whatever conception we have about how we should be, how the world should be, it's never really that useful. So that's why our aspiration, like at the beginning of the sit, we have to even look at our motivation to sit. It really has to be grounded in the present moment. It's not like we're sitting in order to become a more calm person in the future or a wiser, more loving person in the future. When we sit, when we practice formally or informally through the day, when we remember our practice, that I'm a practitioner, I'm interested in this path of waking up, it's always about waking up right now waking up right now and learning from if we're lost, leaning forward into craving or fully fallen forward into grasping, locked up into grasping, that we want to wake up to that. Oh, yeah, this is absolutely not the way. And we learn. We, we sort of receive that lesson. One of the great things about doing longer retreats, 
where you get some momentum in the mindfulness practice, the mind becomes radically sensitive. So there you are, and the mind is like sensitive to absolutely everything. So if you lose your mindfulness for a while, and the mind starts to proliferate about some future vision you have for yourself or for the world, even like 10 minutes, lost in thought, and not even some terrible thought like, you know, I'm going to become the ruler of the universe and kill everybody I don't like. But just just ordinary thoughts about like fixing your kitchen up or, you know, transforming your relationship with your partner and and doing your exercise and getting healthy, you know, kind of relatively wholesome craving. But after 10 minutes of that, because the mind is so sensitive, you'll notice how bound up the mind is. So even once you caught it, realize that you've been proliferating, and now the thinking stops. So you're no longer proliferating. But energetically in the body, that constriction, that being bound up energetically, physically in the body, that doesn't go away right away. It may be hours before the, the 10 minutes of work begins to fade away. The content of the craving, grasping, may disappear immediately. It's like a bubble. You know, it pops. As soon as you catch yourself being insane, you stop being insane. You stop sort of... That's, a, that's an advantage of being really sensitive. But it's also an advantage to notice how slowly the energetic tension that's been whipped up, set in motion. It takes a while for that to fade away. And the more we see that, the more careful we become about what we let the mind do. Because nobody wants this kind of unnecessary mental pain. It's just that we're so distracted we don't realize how much mental pain, mental tension we're whipping up all the time. We just feel so justified. A lot of you know, you know, Wynn and I, my wife and I, have been looking at cabins uh, out in the woods for a while now, for a long time, including some land for to build, you know, cabins for people to do practice from the community here. And uh, you know, it's just so easy to do some skillful looking, but then there's a certain hunger, you know, that takes over. Like, and it, and it's weird how it works because what happens is as we're looking for this, you know, looking at this property online, you know, there's some different websites. Of course, you can go to, and it starts to hurt. And then instead of just stopping and looking at what's going on, it's like when our heart starts to get bound up, we want to do it faster. I want to find it faster. So there, we get a little hungrier. Like. God, it will be so nice when this is over with. <laughs> and so there, there gets to be a desperation, a hunger, like, oh, this has to be the one. And we just start making more and more mistakes. We do that with TV, too. You know, We watch something in order to satisfy a hunger, and it isn't satisfying. So you know, we start looking. There's got to be something entertaining on TV. <laughs> and we look, and if it isn't, then we check the fridge, or we see if we can have sex, or we look for something to entertain us. And we get more and more desperate. Well, maybe I'll go here and pick someone up, or maybe I'll, you know, what does the birch wood have for dessert today? Or, you know, anything 
because the heart's hurting. And this is the real addictive pattern. The more we get into addiction, to craving and grasping, the more the heart hurts. The more the heart hurts, the more we desperately want something to alleviate that grasping. We want some sense experience. doesn't matter how temporary it is, how short it is. Something to give us a little relief. But it just fuels the fire, you know, it just fans the flames of this tendency of the mind. So there's no way out of desire. So remember, hating desire is what, you know, it's sort of like asceticism gone bad. And over and over in spiritual traditions, we see how asceticism does not lead to the resolution of human suffering. It becomes its own heavy trip. You've got people who want to live in gated communities, driving cars that weigh, you know, a couple tons, so that even if some, you know, they do something stupid, like talk on their cell phone and drive off the road, they're going to be fine. Or, you know, whatever else, to have this amazing, amazing insurance policies and this and that. And then we have people who reject it all and think the world is stupid and no insurance and, you know, I'm not going to save money. And that's a heavy trip, too. You know, being against the world, thinking the world is stupid. You know, being alive in the world and hating it is not happiness. And a lot of us feel justified because we're clever enough to see what's wrong with the world. It feels appropriate to hate it and to be against it. But that's not helping anybody. That's just weighing, burdening our heart with the grasping, like I'm grasping another world besides this. But this is the only world we have. So hating desiring is its own desiring, whether you call that asceticism or wisdom. You know, People think it's wisdom to reject the world because it's so bad. So it's really about the transformation of our experience through understanding the experience. We have to invest in understanding. And because desire is really at the center of our lived experience, we have to highlight it. We have to respect it. This is to be understood. Craving, desiring, wholesome desiring of love and compassion, all of these different forces, these are real forces in our lives or motivations volition, this needs to be understood. So we'll come back here next week, but I'll leave it here so we have about 15 minutes. It would be nice to hear from people what you've learned already, being aware of desire in your mind, in your heart, questions you might have. So please say your names if you decide to speak up. What comes to mind? Yeah. Like a nice, like, positive talk, and just, oh, it's like 
Yeah, but here's the thing. You know, grasping is a, a, a deeply conditioned pattern in the mind to grasp what's pleasant, to grasp to get away from what's unpleasant, to grasp to become what we think would be ideal. That's deeply, deeply conditioned into the mind. And so in order to um, change that conditioning, it's like what allows for the change, what rewires the mind or sort of uh, allows the mind to abandon these deeply ingrained patterns. That's that pain. So it's really important that when we are grasping, that the sensitivity that you've developed by being more continuous in your mindfulness, so you become more continuous, more sensitive, that means we're, when we're grasping, we're going to really see how toxic it is. And we're going to see it around us and other people, too. And it's going to be disturbing to see it. But the shock and the, the potency of really seeing how much it hurts is what changes the mind's relationship to the pattern. It's the only thing that changes it. We have to see it. Or you could change the word. We have to feel it in order for transformation to happen. Transformation comes from connecting with the way that it is. And if we're acting in unskillful ways because of habits, then we have to see and feel the effect of those patterns in order to drop them. So it's true with any addiction. Like if, you, if you're a smoker, or if you overeat, or if you drink too much, or if you, you know, watch too much TV, or whatever your addiction might be, you can't just will it away. What allows the pattern to fall away naturally, really see that it doesn't work. Because nobody is consciously insane. The insanity comes from not being aware of what's being done, being disconnected. And then the mind isn't aware of the consequences of its unconscious habits or semi-conscious semi habits. But once we become fully aware of cause and effect, the mind abandons what is clearly not productive. But that means we have to feel it. That's a heavy trip. But we can, in a distracted way, continue suffering forever. Or we can, in a very conscious, mindful way, realize how much suffering there is and become transformed because of it. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, I've got your name again. Uh, Gary. Gary. Two is what is generating ego or obsessive 
Both are motivations in a way. One is sort of a understanding the motivation in terms of uh, the view in the mind. And the other is understanding motivation in terms of its, uh, of its effect in the world. And the in the Buddhist tradition, uh, it's both. Both are emphasized. But, the, but probably in most of the Buddhist traditions, at least, there's a real emphasis on that latter point that you made of seeing, is the motivation coming from a self-centered point of view or from uh, some space, some perspective around that self-centered point of view? So like you could call it maybe a universal point of view, but the absence of a self-centered point of view. Because the interesting thing is, it's not necessarily wrong to build a million-dollar home. There's actually nothing morally wrong about a, building a million-dollar home. Uh, but what's actually, like from a Buddhist point of view, what's actually morally wrong in the sense that it leads to suffering is to build a million-dollar home out of self-centered greed. That will cause problems. But you could build a million-dollar home probably from another motivation that would be wholesome. I think it's possible. And you could definitely go build housing for homeless people from a very self-centered motivation. Like, there are a lot of people doing what looks on the outside like really good work that it's all ego-based, like you suggested. And it's really good for us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.